This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Welcome to the Saving Grace podcast. I'm Simon Eastwood. Over the next four weeks, we want to take a look at the expectation and hope that existed for centuries, anticipating the arrival of Christ, the Messiah. Among many expectations of the Messiah were that he would bring peace, joy, and love, things that were foreign to their lives. But what about believers today? Have we truly discovered the peace, joy, and love that only Christ fulfills in our lives? If these things are lacking in your daily walk, perhaps you are not enjoying the full benefits of the Holy Spirit living in you, or perhaps you are not convinced and therefore have no hope that Christ is returning. Perhaps you aren't sure what his return means to you personally. And for those who have not believed in Christ, what does the second coming of Christ really mean for you? In this Christmas season of hope and expectations, it is only right for us to focus on the one whose first and second coming fulfills every hope and gives each of us the potential of lives full of joy, love, and peace. Today, let's consider the hope of Christ's coming, both then and now. This week, we have the privilege of having Dr. Dave Anderson back. Dave, as you know, is the founder and president of Grace School of Theology. Um, Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about love, joy, peace, hope. And this week, we're going to focus on that first subject in in a sort of a four-part series on hope. So welcome, Dave. It's good to have you back. Great to be here, Simon. Always fun. As we look at the Bible and the Old Testament specifically, we see references to the Messiah uh, who would come. We, we start seeing those in, in Genesis, and I wondered if you would start by kind of walking us through some of those key texts. Well, sure. Uh, the first one is what we call the first gospel, or the first piece of good news after the fall. And that was the promise to Eve that from her would come a seed which would crush the head of the serpent. And that's Genesis 3.15. So that's considered the first messianic promise in the uh, Old Testament. Interesting, though, that almost immediately after that, uh, Eve becomes pregnant, has her first son, and that's Genesis 4.1. And literally in the Hebrew, it says, I've given birth to a man, comma, the Lord. Hmm. So uh, she thinks her first son, uh, Cain, is going to be the Messiah the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And why wouldn't she? Right. She was told one of her offspring would do that. Uh, The first one is a male, and she knows from Genesis 3.15 it's going to be a male. And so she just assumed this will be the Messiah. Imagine how shocked she must have been when Cain sort of crushed the head of Abel instead of the serpent. My, I can't imagine how depressing that must have been for her. But anyway, that's, that's a unique... Reference, we think, to the Lord that you don't uh, hear much about, because usually they translate that, I've begotten a man from the Lord, or I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. But if you look in your text, uh, if if that 
translator's honest, he puts those words in italics, ah. which is telling you they're not in the Hebrew text. But they put those in there to give an understanding to it that they think fits. And it's one way they've kind of worked out the Messianic promises from the Old Testament. Most modern scholars think uh, the idea of a Messiah developed between the two Testaments, between the end of Malachi and the beginning of, uh, well, whatever gospel you think comes first, but between the the two uh, Testaments. But uh, those of us who are a bit more conservative, or maybe a lot more conservative, Mm -hmm. (laughs) we think uh, there are Messianic promises throughout the Old Testament. And the first one there is Genesis 3.15, then I would say Genesis 4.1. Of course, uh, I think most are aware of Genesis 12, and we're told there that uh, he's talking to Abraham, of course, but he says, your seed is going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Right. Well, you know, that's, that's getting to a promise far beyond what a local family could expect to do. Exactly. So we think that's a promise of a coming Messiah who's going to be a blessing to the whole earth. Uh, then, of course, we jump up to uh, reaffirmations of that same promise as we go forward in Genesis. But when you get to Genesis 49, and there we have a promise of uh, Shiloh. And uh, we think it's a promise that, of a peace bringer, someone who's going to bring peace uh, to the whole earth. And by the way, that's one of the five qualifications in the Talmud for the Messiah. <clears throat> and one of the reasons they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, the Jews, because they say he did not bring peace to the whole earth. Uh, he was, in fact, crucified. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons they reject him. But he was to bring, a, bring peace. You jump way up to Isaiah chapter 9, and he's called the Prince of Peace. Right. Uh, so he was to bring, bring a Bring peace. Uh, you know, you get other th- allusions, you might say. Genesis 22, where Isaac is offered. And, uh, we find out in Hebrews that you know, Abraham saw his day. Jesus talks about Abraham saw his day. And uh, we think perhaps that's an illusion because how else could he sacrifice Isaac and still have Isaac as the father of uh, many, many children, mm. uh, that would have to re- require a resurrection. Right. Uh, so we think that's really what uh, Abraham believed in. He he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead after he had sacrificed him, which is pretty interesting. Mm. So that's in Genesis. It's certainly a great place uh, great place to start. So when you when we think back and, and, and we, we look at the Jewish people, they, what were they really expecting in, in the person of the Messiah, Messiah in regard to his agenda, his rule, and his power? You sort of touched on one of the things that, they, that he didn't fulfill, in a uh-huh. sense, because of the, of the way that they, they wrote the Talmud, right? Right. But well, what were they really expecting? Some of, some of these sects uh, that came out, we think the Essenes uh, were part of the cult that pulled away from the Temple Society and gathered at what's called Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Mm. And scholars have studied the Dead Sea Scrolls and found they had four different types of messiahs. Uh, I must have been debating over which was correct. Hmm. But they thought someone from the line of Aaron would be a priestly messiah. Someone from the line of David would be a political messiah. Uh, Someone after the order of Melchizedek, and they thought Melchizedek was sort of an angel. Others sought Elijah. But when you get up to Jerusalem, which is only, you know, 
30 miles away, uh, you get a different picture. And that would be uh, in Matthew 22, Christ is being queried by the different factions. So he decides to pull one on them. So he says, who do you think the Messiah is? Well, they didn't say, well, he's one of these four guys. They just immediately said, he's the son of David. And when they said that, they're going back to 2 Samuel 7, where David has promised a dynasty that his house will remain forever, and one of his own offspring will set up a kingdom that will last forever. So when you say kingdom, now you're talking about political rule. Mm. So they were expecting a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and set up uh, the promised kingdom uh, from Jerusalem. That's what they were looking for. So when we start looking back and we look in the Old Testament, um, we... We, we realize that today, obviously, we, we live in the era of grace, but back then they lived under, under the law. And sometimes I think that people sort of get a little confused about what that was and, and, and the, how, you know, was the law created, you know, for a good reason? Um, and, and how does Christ's coming sort of fulfill that? Mm-hmm. And, and would you just kind of touch on a little bit about the purpose of the law and mm-hmm. um, sure. give us an idea on how that ties into this hope? joy, yeah. love, what we're talking about. Well, you know, there's a tremendous amount of confusion and debate, again, mm-hmm. in scholarly search circles on <clears throat> the law. There are some who call, uh, who think we should be establishing uh, the Mosaic law in our government here in America. Uh, and a lot of that's coming out of Tyler, Texas, by the way. Hmm. Uh, but the law was both civil, was ceremonial, and moral. It had uh, what people broken down into three parts. As far as the Jewish people, it was all one thing. And that's the way they looked at it. In fact, you know, in James 2, he says, if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. Or in Galatians 5, Paul says, if you're going to require circumcision, you have to require everything else the law requires as well. You can't just pull bits and pieces out or separate out the moral law from the ceremony and all the rest of it. But the law was originally given uh, to Moses to establish or reestablish or maintain fellowship with God. Now, uh, let me try to explain that. When you look in the Old Testament, Israel is paralleled to the individual believer in the New Testament. So the way God deals with Israel is the way he deals with us as individuals today. So the emphasis in the Old Testament is not on individual salvation. It's on the nation of Israel and her relationship with God. That relationship was established Uh, with Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. He's the father of the Jewish people. And he gave, God gave him a covenant that would last forever. Galatians 3 says, even though Israel has sinned and wandered away, the covenant has not been done away with. It goes on. So we call that a relationship like a father to a son. Uh, If I have a son and he's uh, my son, that's a relationship that lasts forever. He can't become someone else's son. He can't undo sonship. Uh, I can't deny him as my son. That's an internal relationship. Even if one of us were to go to hell and another to heaven, the relationship's intact, father, son. Right. Now, enjoying that relationship is what we call fellowship. Mm -hmm. Uh, If my son uh, is an honorable son, we'll probably have a lot of great times together, fellowship, enjoying the relationship. If he's a dishonorable son, we'll probably have a lot of distress and... uh, times where we aren't enjoying one another's company at all. Uh, So it's the same with Israel. She 
was told to enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, she had to stay in the land. Isaac tried to leave. God said, get back. Jacob tried to leave. God said, get back. Finally, they left, and they became slaves for 400 years. God brings them out and says, now look, let's, let's spell it out for you. I'm going to put in writing what I'm expecting so that you may live long in the land, that you may be blessed in the land, and that you might enjoy your relationship with me. We call that fellowship. Right. So the Mosaic law was given for fellowship. Abrahamic law was given for relationship. So through the Abrahamic covenant, which goes on forever, God has established a relationship with the nation of Israel. Okay, That doesn't mean all the people born into the uh, nation of Israel, all the physical seed of Abraham will be with God for eternity. The individual still had to exercise faith like anyone else. But the nation will always be represented with God. Uh, someday at the end of uh, the tribulation period, a remnant of Jews will call out for Jesus to come back as their Messiah. As a matter of fact, he said at the end of uh, Matthew 23, I won't come back until you ask me to come back. So they have this eternal relationship with the law of Moses was given for fellowship. So all the different sacrifices were ways of confessing their sins, you might say. Hmm. It was a way of maintaining fellowship. And through that, uh, an Old Testament believer could have joy and uh, hope and uh, love and these things. Uh, the big difference was they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Right. And, of course, the fruit of the Spirit just starts off with love, joy, peace. All right. So they didn't have the enablement to live up to God's expectations uh, that we have today. Uh, but nevertheless, they could still live by faith. He says to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Hmm. So that ability that they had to sacrifice, make sacrifices sort of to atone for their sins, mm -hmm. that is, so it was sort of a, a foreshadowing of Christ's ultimate sacrifice exactly. for us on the cross. Exactly. Uh, the way we say that um, uh, salvation, the plan of salvation, is the same from Adam all the way to the last person. Mm. The requirement is faith. The object of our faith is God. The means of our faith is the blood of Christ. That moment in history when he was sacrificed that one sacrifice paid for all the sins from Adam up to Christ, and it pays for all the sins from Christ's death until the last human being. Uh, so it's the blood of Christ applied. But uh, as they're making those sacrifices, the, the uh, uh, Paschal Lamb, all these things, it's looking forward to the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Mm. So, so today we have the benefit, obviously, of the full uh, revelation of Christ. And so we can go back in Scripture, basically, and spot uh, the passages that make it really clear um, that Jesus was and is the Messiah. Um, but back then, um, they were, there were some blinders that sort of caused many Jews to, to in, in, in essence, just miss the first coming of Christ. What, what do you think those were? He just didn't fit their uh, silhouette, you might say, okay. of a political conqueror. You know, they had been conquered by many uh, people through the years. You've got Cyrus the Great, you've got Alexander the Great, and of course you have the Romans coming in, and usually uh, the conqueror will come in riding his white stallion and uh, have his armor on and then lead a bunch of captives back to right. the home state to be slaves. Well, they looked forward to being uh, delivered from the Gentile dominion 
over Israel, so undoubtedly that's what they had in mind is that kind of deliver, and who wouldn't? That's probably right. what I would have been thinking of myself. Right. Uh, so when you have someone coming in meek and lowly, riding on the foal of an ass, right. uh, you know, not coming on a great white stallion, and uh, not overthrowing the Romans, and then being crucified, the ultimate shame for a Jewish male was to be seen naked. Mm. And uh, in crucifixion, uh, they didn't, unlike a lot of our movies, they weren't six feet up in the air with loincloth on. They were about a foot to foot and a half off the ground, naked. Mm. And people could come by and jab at them with sticks and uh, humiliate them, spit on them, all kinds of things. Mm. So to think that this guy who died in such a, to them, shameful way uh, could be uh, their political messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews. Yeah. You know, it's a complete stumbling block. Even the way Christ was born, right? I mean, if if when I when I think of the the, the royalty, the, uh, the the regalness of of, of some of the kings, mm-hmm. uh, their expectation probably would have been something along the lines of, well, that would be an appropriate way to come to the world. Instead, Christ came in, you know, born in a cave. We think, right? So that too probably would have sort of not fit their their picture in their mind. Yeah, I don't know what expectation they had for the actual birth okay. of Christ, um, but he certainly wasn't coming from uh, uh, the way he came. He wasn't coming from what they would have pictured as a powerful family background. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. So so we have the first coming of Christ, and, and, and that's, that's recorded in, in Scripture for us. And that's kind of what we traditionally celebrate at, at Christmas time. We, we we look at at his birth, and then then if we're if we're a believer, we look from there all the way through to when he was crucified, and 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 the fact that that paid for our sin and made it possible for us to have a relationship with him, with the living God. But let's transition a little bit, if we can, from from that. You know, it's a beautiful picture. And and it's a it's absolutely an essential picture that we have in our in our in our minds and our hearts to understand that we have a forever home with Christ in heaven that that relationship is possible, but what would you say if we look at the second coming of Christ and that's something that we may need to just start by just defining what that is for some of our listeners may not know what that means let's just start by defining that and and then talk a little bit about what hope that gives us as as believers. Uh, around the second coming? Well, sure. Uh, you know, we in, in grade school theology have a dispensational uh, perspective. Uh, so that means we think when Christ comes again at his second coming, he is going to come, you might say, as a political ruler. Mm. He's going to set up a kingdom that will last a thousand years, according to Revelation 20. And he's going to rule from Jerusalem, according to a number of texts like Psalm 110. Uh, his scepter will go out from Zion around the entire earth. And uh, so that will be a time in which he finally puts all his enemies down, mm. uh, except for death. Uh, he, he will put the devil, uh, he will be bound for a thousand years during that millennial period, not fully put away until after the thousand years when he's thrown into the lake of fire. But he comes back as a conquering hero. He left as a, a lamb. He comes back as a lion, lion out of the tribe of Judah. And he'll have an army with him. Uh, according to Psalm 110, verse 3, 
It'll be a volunteer army, and it will be the saints who are already with him uh, via the rapture, and they can volunteer to come back with him if they so choose. In fact, it's a beautiful scene in Psalm 110, verse 3, because it says he looks out at the, uh, the people who have volunteered, and they look like the dew in the morning. And there's so many of them, it just looks like the dew sprinkled all over the, all over the ground. <laughs> so that's quite a bit different from his first coming. But it's not the rapture. Uh, the rapture, of course, he doesn't touch down on planet Earth. Uh, in his second coming, according to Zechariah 12, uh, he's going to actually split the Earth from uh, uh, Mount of Olives all the way down to the Dead Sea when he comes at that time. But um, he doesn't touch down at the rapture. We're caught up to be with him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Some people get those confused. Okay. We think the rapture takes place before the tribulation begins, and then seven years later, via the old Jewish calendar of 360 days per uh, year, the lunar calendar, that uh, he comes back for his second coming. But the great hope, of course, then is to be with him and mm. uh, reign with him during those thousand years, uh, serve him, uh, worship him. So... In the weeks ahead, we're going to discuss the love and the peace and the joy which is found only in Christ Jesus. Believers already have or should have experienced these things firsthand, sort of as the first fruit of the Holy Spirit living in us. But what might our hope be for these experiences to be fully realized when we see Christ face-to-face at the rapture? Well, I would say uh, the main thing at, at the rapture would be we get glorified bodies and those who are raised from the dead at that time, the dead in Christ rise first. And uh, that's what we get. But what we get rid of, which mm. I'm looking forward to, is our sinful nature. Oh, amen. And I don't know about you, but I still struggle with that daily. And I'd say that does more to rob my joy than anything else. Yeah. So uh, that battle will be over. Mm. And I so look forward to that. And that will allow me to enjoy uh, the fruit of the Spirit on a constant basis. So that's, that's a gigantic hope. What a great gift. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So here at Grace, we, uh, we also have a hope in the teaching of Christ's literal thousand-year reign on earth. Would you tell us a little bit about that and perhaps share a few scriptures that confirm how we can have that hope? Well, the, the actual mention of a thousand years only occurs in Revelation 20. Okay. And it's mentioned in there six times. Uh, some people want to say that's symbolic. <clears throat> a day is with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. So it doesn't mean a thousand literal days. But we don't have any examples in Scripture where a number like that is repeated over and over and over mm. of just a, a symbol. Uh, so we think that's a literal thousand-year reign. The prediction of that reign is all over the Old Testament and the New. Peter asked Jesus, hey, we've left everything to follow you in Matthew 19. What are we going to get out of this? Mm -hmm. And looking at his disciples, he says, to you it should be granted in the regeneration, and he's talking there about when he comes back and sets up his kingdom, to sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Of course, that's in his kingdom. But going way back to to, to Psalm 2, uh, and even before that, as I've already mentioned, 2 Samuel 7, but in Psalm 2, he says, most assuredly, I will set my uh, 
sun on his on the holy hill uh, in Zion, and uh, uh, that's talking about the rain from Zion, and it's over the whole world because he says at the end of the psalm, uh, "Kiss the sun mm. uh, before he crushes you like a piece of pottery," mm. and that was a, a form of abject submission to kiss the foot of the sun so, or any monarch. So, uh, you know, this kingdom is uh, from w- predicted from way, way back there. And it goes back really to what we call the meta-narrative or the primary theme that explains the existence of mankind and, and the whole biblical story. Because Genesis 1 starts with something that Adam was supposed to do, and that was to take dominion right. over planet Earth. Well, he failed. Noah was to take dominion. He failed. So men kept on failing. God, God finally said, okay, I'm going to have to bring in a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. So Christ became the second Adam, and the climax of human history is that kingdom because that's where he does what Adam was supposed to do. And all of that was to answer the questions raised by Satan when he rebelled uh, in heaven, and that is, who has the right to rule, God or Satan? Mm. And is God worthy of being loved? Those questions are answered through the human race and through the setting up of that kingdom where Christ reigns justly for a thousand years. Mm. So what, what's it going to be like to be there in that, in that thousand-year reign? Um, what's, what, what are we going to be doing as believers? Oh, racing motorcycles. Is that right? No about it. I didn't it. know that. <laughs> well, One of your passions, I know. <laughs> yeah, before I fell. <laughs> well, it's uh, something that, again, so much of the future is just not made clear to us. Right. Uh, we do know that we'll have uh, fellowship with him forever. Uh, and those who have s- chosen to serve him and those who have been willing to suffer for his sake— are promised special places of fellowship with him. He says in Revelation 2 and, uh, that if you are an overcomer, and that, in that sense, uh, the word nikao, from which we get Nike or victory, if you are a victorious Christian, he says there, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna uh, that was in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, no one would have thought of opening up that ark. Mm. I'll give you some of the hidden manna, and then I'll give you a white stone on which I uh, will give you a term, a, a nickname, but a term of endearment that only you and I know. Mm. So it, it, he's speaking there of a promise of special intimacy with him. And I really believe that the uh, intimacy we find with him on earth is in some way proportionate to the intimacy we have with him in that kingdom and then in eternity in the New Jerusalem. So... Uh, We have that. The other things he talks about are reigning, that uh, if we uh, endure, we shall reign with him. Mm. Uh, And if we uh, suffer with him, we shall be co-heirs with him. And uh, so, you know, that part I don't fully understand because I'm not an administrator. And uh, it doesn't excite me to think of being mayor of several cities. Right. So that's. I think that has to be somehow uh, symbolic of of some form of service that I will enjoy yeah. and, and enjoy doing. Now, my wife has the gift of administration, so she'd probably enjoy being queen over Dallas, or you'd be happy to be with New her. York, <laughs> something like that. <laughs>
<laughs> no, I just want to say I knew Betty. I, He's, oh. Yeah, I, I, there's no marriage in heaven, so. Right, that's true. I just would like to name drop. She's already given me permission. Has she? Yeah. Well, she's a great woman. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dave, in the last few minutes of, of this podcast, and thanks for all that, you know, you've been sharing with us about about the hope we have in Christ and, and the, the the hope that, that, that really Scripture has portrayed from the very beginning all the way through that we have that privilege of being able to look at that. But in the last few minutes of this, if, if somebody is listening to this podcast for the, for the first time, perhaps, or they're, or they're hearing about Jesus Christ for the first time, what would you want them to know around this season of the, of the year when we're first broadcasting this well, podcast? Well, and this, uh, this focuses on hope. And the hope that's uh, usually talked about in Scripture is the blessed hope. Mm. Uh, blessed meaning car, makarios, meaning happy. It's a happy hope. And that is his uh, any moment now return. Now, that's not the second coming. We're talking about the rapture. Right. And, you know, not as much in America as around the world, but Christians are truly being persecuted today. Yes. I've been told that a 1,000 a day are being killed. And as you look at over there with some of what ISIS has done, you know, in one of those cities they chose to behead the children and not the parents. Mm. And uh, uh, just... Such an incredible suffering. I'm reminded of what uh, we're told by archaeologists was written on the walls of the catacombs in Rome where the Christians were being fed to the lions, and uh, over and over they saw uh, Maranatha, Maranatha. Hmm. And that means he's coming, he's coming. That was their hope. That was their hope, Uh, he's coming. And I think that's our hope today. You know, you don't have to be... Uh, outwardly persecuted uh, to suffer. I mean, we mm. could go through so many stories of uh, believers who have uh, been made bitter by the suffering of life and believers who have been made better by the suffering of life. But one thing that helps us endure the present is G. Campbell Morgan, who suffered quite a bit physically toward the end of his life. He said the hope that he could be back any moment was, for me, the light at the end of my dark tunnel of suffering. Mm. And uh, I think that can be true for uh, many of us. It's a happy hope. Uh, it's a blessed hope. Well, amen. We, we, uh, I, to- I totally agree. And, and just uh, thank you again for, for coming on and for sharing what's on your heart uh, as it relates to, to hope and uh, our overall relationship with Jesus Christ. You're most welcome. We love your questions, so please keep them coming. We uh, just appreciate the opportunity to incorporate them into our upcoming shows and have either our past or our future uh, guests answer your questions. You can email us at savinggrace at gsot.edu. That's savinggrace at gsot.edu. If you'd like to receive more information about Grace School of Theology, please visit partnerwithgrace.org. On that website, you will find information about the school, how to become a financial partner or a prayer partner with us. It is just a way to get you more involved with Grace School of Theology. Partnerwithgrace.org. Thanks for listening to this edition of Saving Grace. And remember, it's a love that can't be earned and can't be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash saving grace. 
views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Great School of Theology or its leadership.